I'm Ali. And I'm Penny. And you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands. Hi. Well, this week we have a couple of changes. First of all, you will notice very quickly that there is no Penny here this week. Penny has, unfortunately, had to spend her week in isolation. And although we do always record remotely and we are completely COVID compliant at all times, Penny couldn't manage to record without running the risk of being disturbed. So I am um, taking the reins this week, but thankfully I am also joined by a brilliant and very vocal guest. Titiana Denford is here with me today and we will be chatting to her very shortly. Um, Penny and I committed this week to the slightly mammoth and perhaps foolish, time will tell, task of reading and talking about the entire long list of the Women's Prize. There are brilliant books on the long list this year. I think it's an exceptionally exciting list, which is why we've decided that we're going to read it all. And then in the eight weeks running up to the announcement of the winner in July, we will be having a lot of Women's Prize related content. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. It will be coming soon. So this week, we're going to be talking about self-publishing. And then moving on and talking about grief and the ways that we can work and shape work around such a big um, emotive subject that at one stage or other we will all have to face in our lives. Um, I'm really excited this week to be joined by Tatiana. Um, Tatiana is the author of a novel, Motherland, which came out in March last year. And I think I'm right in saying that it is based on a true story. Am I right in that? Yes. Yes, yes. It's based on um, a family secret uh, that I found out about my grandmother. And it kind of uh, put me on this trajectory to write this story because it was a cinematic epic. It was kind of crazy, um, Mm. the story. So, yes, um, based on a true story. Brilliant. There's nothing as juicy as a family secret to mine, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) And then this year, you're just about to launch uh, your second book, which is quite a departure from the first, but no less inspired by your grandmother. Um, This book is about grief and about your grief that you experienced when your grandmother passed away. Is that correct as well? Yeah. So... Um, I kind of like uh, trying different genres and um, I had the idea of having pocket-sized books for a long time and I just thought, um, you know, something that you can kind of take with you, something that's portable, something that you can kind of dip into and out of. And um, after I published uh, Motherland, uh, my grandmother died a month later and obviously we were in lockdown thanks pandemic. Um, and, (laughs) and I kind of experienced grief in a bit of a vacuum. Suddenly it just, Mm -hmm. everything slowed down and it was the, it was the first deep experience of grief that I'd ever had. And, um, you know, other, you know, my grandparents on on one side of the family had already died, but I wasn't that close to them. But, um, with my grandmother passing, it felt, like the wind had been knocked out of me Mm. and um 
it was destabilizing and unsettling and all of those things. And I just couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And it also scared me because with love comes grief kind of, you know, there's always that element. You kind of live with it kind Mm -hmm. of you, life always has grief in it. So I thought, I just couldn't do anything else apart from write because that's just, I disappear into that world when I need to figure things out. And suddenly this first book started coming out and it was because I just kept having conversations with myself and conversations with her and her memory. And it was just, it came out kind of like a fever. It just kept coming and coming and and it really helped me kind of love the thing that happened to me if that makes sense you know I think it does make sense it's a really difficult thing to um to grasp or to think about because then you obviously have to consider that your grandmother's death is something that you become to love but the thing that happens I completely understand that when something difficult happens in life if you kind of go into that space of trying to solve it trying to unpick it trying to work it out trying to work out what you're there with then it's really powerful because it's something that acts on you and changes you as a person as well yeah yeah and it's it, it's less trying to and it was interesting because I tend to overanalyze because I'm a bit of a control freak anyway so um what what I what I realized was that I couldn't figure it out what Mm -hmm. I had to do is invite it in and live with it yeah and by doing that I would take it sounds really odd but I would take the dog for a walk in the woods and it's my favorite place and I would walk as if I'm walking with a friend and that friend was grief Mm -hmm. and I had to invite it in and I had to love it in order for it to kind of teach me how to keep going. You know, I, I had to, it's like, it's like, what, what do people say? You have to live through something in order to release it. But, but, but the irony is that grief, you, you never can live without it. It's just mm-hmm. there. It will yeah. always be there like everything has a pact with grief, love, mm-hmm. motherhood, yeah, any kind of relationship, life, like you just live with it. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, why not get to know it? Mm. I think that's brilliant. It's so powerful as well, because I noticed um, when I've had periods of grieving that it kind of makes you more alert to the other areas of grief in your life so like you say motherhood is a form of grief I find that I'm constantly um, grieving the children my children were so you're grieving their babyhood you're grieving because they just are changing all the time but you're also grieving who you were before you had the children and so it's very um it's fluid isn't it it's like this dynamic process it's not yeah yeah and and the thing that that I'm perversely grateful for is that this happened in a time where I actually couldn't go anywhere mm-hmm. because I, so I couldn't distract myself going to work. I couldn't um, travel anywhere. I couldn't, I was kind of stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And I think, and obviously we post rationalize everything that happens to us, but I really genuinely think that I wouldn't have been able 
to write this book had I not been in a lockdown because I would have buried it and then it would have appeared at some point another time in kind of bits and pieces. But I had no choice but to sit and Mm. understand what was happening to me, which is how this book came out. It was kind of a a gift in a weird Mm. way, you know. Yeah, that also makes sense. I really like the idea of that you couldn't bury it. You had to sit and then you had to go through the process. I don't know um, what it was like in the States, but here, um, obviously, people couldn't go to funerals. They couldn't say goodbye to their loved ones. They couldn't see them. So these traditional ways of grieving were stripped. So I suppose what you're doing is you're kind of doing something else, something other to put your grief into as well. Yeah. And I, and it was, you know, and I think books are always well-written when you write them for yourself rather than for the audience or the industry. And I wrote this as a first series of three books that are coming out this year because I, I needed it, especially this Mm. first one. I needed it to, as to kind of help me understand, but I think I just, and then I thought, like when it was kind of finally finished, I looked at it and I thought, you know what? I, I bet a lot of people had to sit with grief in a vacuum and, and you know, because of how many people unfortunately lost their mm-hmm. lives kind of over the last year. So I think it's always, I'm really proud of it because I think it's always something that I'm going to dip into and find mm-hmm. something new, you know? Yeah. And you're right about grief, because I think that obviously losing someone is probably the the worst grief that you can experience. It's such a black grief. It's such a difficult mm. grief to explain. And it's a grief that changes shape, but it doesn't leave you. It's It's something that you carry. Like you say, you invite it in and it is something that you carry with you. Um, for the rest of your life. I think we're so used to seeing grief as something that you experience and then you move on, you pop it away and it's gone. Um, But everybody has lost something this year, whether or not it is their independence or their hopes for the future or their dreams that were much more kind of conversant with grief. And this is so relevant. And I think, you know, it changes, not only it changes us, but grief changes shape. You know, Mm -hmm. when you experience it in your life, it constantly kind of moves and kind of alters. And I think, you know, one of my favorite bits about this book was that um, the each cover has a line drawing. It's one it's one line. And to me, it's it represents that one line represents the thread that binds Um, all of us like we could be from different backgrounds and have different skin colors and speak different languages and believe in different things. But the themes of these books, especially grief is something that we will all experience. Mm. Yeah. It's a thread that really unites and it's a thread that we understand across cultures, although every culture has a different way of experiencing grief and a different way of um, working out rituals and, and ways of kind of, dealing with it but yeah that's completely right and I love this idea of grief as a shapeshifter I actually wrote that um a couple of weeks ago because my book's heavily 
the end of it is is really about grieving the loss of my mother although she's not dead it's still a loss um mm. and yeah I speak about grief as being this thing that changes shape and it it pops up at times when you don't expect it to in ways you don't expect it to as well yeah I mean you know and it and you know there's so much of life that kind of we have to accept the loss of you know we have to I think sometimes we even make the decision to to lose something in order for us to move forward. Mm-hmm. Like we are the ones that have to kill something off in a way, you know, yeah. friendships, um, you know, th- relationships, things kind of change and you have to, I hate to say that I hate to use the word kill, but like you have to get rid of them and then bury them and be okay with it in order to move on sometimes, you know? So again, like that's a different kind of grief. That Mm -hmm. is, you know, so um, it's, I, (laughs) I have always been fascinated by death and loss kind of my whole life. And I, but, but it also scares me. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, facing something, facing the element of fear kind of makes me accept that there's nothing I can do about it. There's, you know, you just, you just have to go, okay, well, this is an element of my life that I just have to accept and I have to love and I have to support and, you know, mm. and all, and also like that, I mean, I've, I've probably said this to you before, but my personal mantra is that, well, we're all going to be dead one day. So <laughs> mine is... <laughs> <laughs> you know, so if if that's the case, then why not kind of face what you're most scared of and talk about it and write about it? So hence the yeah. conversation. And I think that's something we're exceptionally bad at as a culture. I think that we try and delay the inevitable. We try and look as young as possible for as long as possible. We try and pretend that it's not going to happen to us. And of course it's going to happen to us. And we're also going to observe it and see it and participate in other people's deaths and experience grieving. And it's an exceptionally difficult thing to come to terms with. I think that in a way that's maybe the hardest part of growing up is entering into this conversation with grief because as a child you feel that you're invincible you can't imagine a world without you in it or without your people in it as well yeah and you know what I I love that also when you're a child you take it for face value you don't really because it it doesn't affect you like mm-hmm. it does when you start understanding mortality. So yeah. when you're a, when you're a kid, you know, my own kids sometimes ask me really strange questions like, "Oh, when you die, can I have your jewelry?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've got several dresses in my wardrobe that my daughters have like earmarked for when I die. As, as if they don't <laughs> understand the the deep consequence of me not yeah. being there anymore. Yeah. yeah. And then and then suddenly you get older and you start to realize heartbreak is a kind of loss. And you go, oh, hang on. You know, all of these things kind of start building. Mm-hmm. And you then start realizing that, oh yeah, we aren't invincible. We aren't mm-hmm. going to keep going. People we love won't be around mm-hmm. us forever. Your parents, you get to a stage where where your own parents, you look at them as 
people, not as your parents anymore, not as these Uh invincible beings that will be around forever. You start looking at them as people who make their choices and now they're getting older and, oh, they're not going to be around forever. Oh. (laughs) Completely. And it becomes quite sobering. I distinctly remember... I think it was when I hit about 33, 34 of realizing that I could remember my mother at that age and she seemed so grown up and she seemed so old. And I thought in the eyes of children, I'm old, I'm grown up, but I didn't see myself as being grown up. And I remember my mom turning 40 as well. And I was 40 last year. And again, thinking that she was really grown up I really thought 40 was ancient that was it and um yeah yeah, and now I'm ancient too and it seems very strange because I just yeah I didn't ever think that I would be and yet it is such an important thing to come to terms with and so I think it just is an incredible um idea for a book and an incredible idea for a series so can you tell me any more about the next two books yes um so um the next one, and hopefully I'm going to get it out in May sometime, um, wow. is, I know, <laughs> I'm, I'm driving myself a little bit insane, but um, I'm really excited about the next one because the next one is about motherhood. Um, oh, and we all love a conversation about that. But it's, you know, there are so many books out there that exist about uh, the hilarious and ridiculous bits about motherhood mm. because they are because motherhood is a total circus um, and I wanted to write something again it's poetry prose little essays about the the weird bits of motherhood that you love or the bits of motherhood that you don't love but there's a reason why it's like I was I was sitting um and saying goodnight to the kids the other night and I sat there going there was a it was a really strange reaction I didn't want to lie down with them in bed and kind of hug and kiss and cuddle them goodnight I didn't want to Mm. and the reason why is because I knew that that moment would be over and then the next day they'd be a little bit older. And so there's a, there's a reticence to, to holding them more or carrying them Mm. because you know that that might be the last time or something. It's a really strange thing that happens sometimes in my brain. You know, I refuse to acknowledge that they are getting older. It's a, it's a wild thing that happens sometimes. So I wanted to write more of that rather than the kind of the jokes and the, mm-hmm. and the, and the funny bits, I think, you know, because I'm all about that, but sometimes I just, I want something that kind of punches you in the chest a bit and goes, Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what motherhood does do. It completely, um, well, rips you up quite literally yeah. and then metaphorically as well. It, just reshapes you and every child does that as well I find because I've got four you've got three haven't you yeah yeah so um I find that I changed with each one and then I was talking to another writer recently who was saying she was saying how she feels that you you don't just change once with each one but because each child is different they're constantly changing you you're constantly evolving and being made to evolve by your children so yeah motherhood I think it's such a paradox. It's a really 
paradoxical states and I think it's yeah. really important to have work that examines it a lot more um forensically and more deeply than just the jokes because I think the jokes to us and and it is funny at times being a mom it's also exceptionally hard and I think that just the kind of jokiness around it devalues and diminishes just the degree of difficulty associated with it as well yeah and I and I kind of I mean this is not to be disparaging for, about any kind of narrative that people use but I'm kind of getting tired of the you know necking a bottle of Prosecco or mm -hmm. gin like in the it's just it's a bit of an old tired trope mm -hmm. and yeah. I just want to talk about even the, even in this motherhood book I included kind of the perspective of the women who have unsuccessfully carried who are still mm. mothers in my eyes and or the women who are trying who want desperately to be mothers who cannot they mm -hmm. are still that is still a relentless burden of motherhood in a way they mm -hmm. carry that just like everybody else and I think you know all of those conversations are so important I just I just think some of the narratives surrounding motherhood that have been trendy and have been popular are just a bit limiting and they're mm -hmm. a bit narrow they're a bit narrow yeah I just want to kind of spread it out a bit and I'm not saying that everybody has to cry and be emotional about when they're talking about motherhood but you know, I just think it's a more broader, a, a broader perspective would mm. be kind of interesting. Just yeah. My, you know. I think it's a lot more annoyance than simply uh, have a kid and it turn you to drink. Um, I think yeah. it's also quite, I, I really, I strongly dislike um, that narrative. I think it's another way of of pushing the alcohol industry on women as well I think oh, don't get me don't get yeah. me started on the whole like and it's it's a bit damaging and mm -hmm. and I <laughs> that could be a whole different conversation but I just think <laughs> that that you know framing it within that is just complicated and has layers of problems with it but you know I just I just think underneath it all I do think people talk and think about these strange kind of deeper layers mm -hmm. but it's like earlier when we were talking about how you know people try and hold off aging because deep down they don't really want to talk about the thing that ultimately scares them which is mortality mm -hmm. the thing with motherhood is you can go surface level and talk about how you know you want to sell your kids on ebay and you drink wine at three o'clock in the afternoon and yes that's funny but actually, I think maybe that just might be masking the fact that it's really unnerving and hard and mm. strange motherhood. And mm. you don't you don't like it all the time because it's quite debilitating, this thing where you think, I don't know if I'm doing it right. And also mm -hmm. my kids are going to leave me one day. And then what happens to me? Yes. Yeah. And I think yeah. that is the heart of the matter, isn't it? That, that you realize that because obviously the older you get, the better grasp you have on how finite time is and how short a time your kids are children for. I remember with my first feeling like the first five years, it just took forever. And then suddenly she's 15 and, yeah. and I don't know how that's happened. And she'll be 16 in the spring. And that means that there's two more years left of her at home. And I just can't 
get my head around that and kind of my youngest was four the other day and it's just like what's happening and you're right it is the shift that you you become very aware that as a woman your life kind of moves in cycles I think you become aware of these distinct phases of life and I realized that my kind of reproductive phase is done with I'm not going to have more children I'm not going to have the baby years back it's very odd yeah and it's a I, I always have this philosophy that I think um women go through several stages of puberty and I think it's because you know you have the one at you know when you're a teenager but then when right before you decide to have children and even if you don't but I think like late 20s early 30s you shift a little bit and you know you start experimenting with certain styles or you kind of question what you look like and and then suddenly when you're in your 40s there's another shift that happens Mm -hmm. and you start trying to figure out who am I who am I outside of having kids Mm -hmm. or if you don't have kids who am I outside of having this job Uh who am I within my relationship you know you start trying to figure yourself out again Uh um yeah you're completely right I think you also start trying to figure yourself out outside a little bit more outside of what's been sold to you because I was I was a real avid consumer particularly in my 20s I really thought that would make me happy cosmetics clothes all of that it didn't work um and for the past 10 years I've been deeply immersed in babies and babyhood and reading and trying to build a career as a writer as well and lots of very kind of circular things to a certain extent but I think that by the time you get into your 40s I know I certainly am kind of trying to think what what am I outside of this model that I've been sold that I don't feel is giving me very much value at all yeah very much satisfaction and I think like you know the 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 second book about motherhood also kind of reframes how we look at our own mothers Mm. and I think, you know, we start realizing that they are just women who had to make decisions for themselves around children or maybe around adoption or maybe something happened in their past that we don't even know about Mm -hmm. that shaped, you know, who they were as mothers. So I think it kind of lets us have that conversation Mm. too like oh these are just women they are not just mothers we are not just mothers yeah that's a really important conversation because I think children don't don't and can't fully grasp that they that there was a time before them so they can't understand that before them you were a completely fully rounded individual and at times quite a different individual to the one that you are when you're raising them um and you go through that period when you're in your teens being quite judgmental about your parents quite judgmental about the choices they make particularly I think I was raised by a single mom so I didn't judge my dad ironically um however yeah I was quite judgmental about my mom and I didn't realize um that you know she was doing the best she could do with things that happened before I was born because again those things that happened before I was born didn't happen in terms in the perspective of her life all that long ago either and then when you become a mother it brings back the way that you were mothered as well 
completely. Um, you know, and I don't know. I just think, you know, we also, when we are, if we decide to have children, when we are younger, we are new mothers. We very easily judge other people for their own <laughs> kind of mothering yeah. choices. And actually that's just, I look back and I think I had in my head what would be the best for my child. And I you know, would sometimes look and be like, oh, I wonder why they're making that choice or whatever. But ultimately that's my own insecurity mm -hmm. projecting onto somebody else because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Yeah. You know? I was so, so smug when I was a new mom because my first was relatively easy I didn't realize that she was easy I thought I was really good at it so I was like <laughs> oh, I'm acing this I thought I was great and um and I did like feed her all the organic purees and all that kind of stuff happened with yeah. the first one and then my son was born and he was just like this hell beast from the <laughs> Like, honestly, from the second he was born. In fact, from when I was pregnant, he was just, he's very fiery and he's very yeah. himself. He was born just him, fully formed. Um, and there's not much I can do about that. And um, yeah, then I realized it wasn't me. I wasn't good. He was the one that completely threw all my ideas about my ability to mother out the water. I just, uh, yeah. And I think fun. it's, and I think it's healthy that we gain that perspective at some point because it it calms us down a bit I remember mm -hmm. like my, my first one I was the same my third one I was like yes you can eat that off the floor that's fine <laughs> I just I didn't care I was like don't lick the car don't you know it's 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 great because it, it got me out of myself yeah you know, I was so high and mighty with the first one and then you know I think kids are like pancakes you probably you know screw the first one up and then by the the more you have you just don't give a crap anymore <laughs> well I think like statistically if you keep having them you're gonna get it right at one stage eventually yes. yeah there's gonna or be a listen, good pancake <laughs> as, as long as you save money for therapy that's fine like the <laughs> <laughs> well everyone needs it regardless of their parents is basically exactly. what I'm telling myself exactly, oh, yeah. yeah I know the kind of existential fear when you're a mother is just something <laughs> else as well so that's your second one second. yes and the so and then the third one the third one is about love and yeah. and everything that goes along with it um the ridiculousness the, the pain the joy but love when it comes to romantic love and love for your children and a lot of uh, self-love um, and love for you know the world that you're in right now and how complicated mm. that is and I think love is a very nuanced word and I think people throw it around quite casually sometimes because it's a sparkly thing that we want to hold on to but um, I think Love is just a puzzle, isn't it? Mm. And I wanted to explore that more um, because I, I think as you get older, a lot of love is kind of focused on self-love. And, and I don't want to sound like this person that's giving, you know, affirmations and manifestations about how to be this fully formed human being because self-love is complicated just like any love and uh, yeah. and I have had issues with that 
um, for most of my life. So I think love came, the, the, the book on love came out of me digging into self-love mm. first. And then it kind of the perspective, oops, um, the perspective kind of went wide on that one. And again, that's like, all of these are, are one line drawing. The covers are exquisite. I can't wait to release mm. them. Um, you know, but yeah, love. the cover that I've seen for the first one is is absolutely beautiful. And I love that the third one um, is about love because I've been thinking a lot um, about love and grief. And it occurred to me quite recently that the opposite of love is grief. And for yeah. a long time, I had thought that the opposite of love was hate. But I don't believe that it is because love carries within it at all times the idea of grief. You can't love someone without entertaining the fact that at some point, you pro- more than likely will grieve for them. So, yeah. yeah. And actually, that's an interesting point because hate, the energy to hate something mm-hmm. is rooted in caring. Now, I'm not saying that in order to hate someone, you have to love them, but hate is, you're right, hate is not the opposite of love. Hate carries with it an energy where you care so intensely about something or someone that you create a narrative in order to hate that thing. Mm, yeah. So within that, there is a little, there's a little grain of what love is made up of. So, you know, love and grief to me, and it's, they're good bookends kind of having yeah, the first lovely. and the third, but love and grief are, are a perverse kind of marriage. You know, when you, the first time you fall in love with someone, you make, you step into a contract Mm -hmm. where you are leaving yourself open to have your heart broken. Yeah, completely. At some point, at some point you will have your heart broken. And it's amazing that human beings will fall in love over and over and over again. And Mm -hmm. that's hope. And, and Mm. I just, I find that extraordinary and love really is quite a superpower because like, if you have that, you're like, yeah, I can, I can deal with the loss. I can deal with the heartbreak. If I have this moment where I get to love someone, that is, that is amazing. Yeah. Because then you have, yeah, you've experienced the moments and then you kind of build a, a bank of all these moments yeah love gives you as well that you can then when you are grieving those are things that you look back on it's really yeah you know the phrase um, may their memory be a blessing it's the same thing that in time once you've got through the really kind of raw edgedness of grief that that your memories do become blessings that you have of people as well and I did like the the beginning um of a conversation with grief opens with something that I I thought for a while as soon as my grandmother died which is and I dedicate the book to anybody who's lost love because the weight I said the weight of grief helps you find it again Mm. you know when you feel like you have lost someone and you and you loved them grief is just this kind of little reminder it's a little kind of stone in your pocket that makes you go Mm. oh yeah you know yeah, it, it's a, to a certain extent, it becomes a way of evoking the person and bringing the person mm-hmm. back to you. So that's a really lovely way of describing it. I like the idea of a stone in a pocket. You're a little bit weighed down, but you're not as weighed down as you once were. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so these books, which I think all sound absolutely fantastic and are really beautiful. I've seen the cover of the first one and it was, I love the way you revealed it on Instagram. It was very exciting to see it come into being. People were a bit annoyed. People were a bit bit annoyed. They're like, oh, come on already. (laughs) No, I loved it. And I think it is. It's a really exquisite cover. Um, Thank you. But you have self-published them all. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that just now. because you are clearly um, a powerhouse. <laughs> because you well, have. Well. <laughs> it's a year since you published your first, and now yes. you are nearly an exact year later publishing yes. your next, and then the next three in a very short space of time. So let's talk a little bit about um, your route to self publishing. So, this was something that you chose for yourself. I did. Um, And it kind of came about kind of by accident, I think, um, because I when I finished um, Motherland, the manuscript was ready. I went through the whole kind of polished up my synopsis query letter and I made a whole spreadsheet of about 50 agents and I went down the submission route and it was amazing the amount of feedback I got. Um, And I'm very lucky because I kept getting full requests all the time mm. and, and I'm not, I'm not embellishing at all. It was one of the, the most amazing things because mm. two months <laughs> people were, you know, agents were coming back to me and I had a Skype session with one of them and I, I had all my hopes up. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, I mean, they loved the work they loved my writing they thought I had an amazing presence all of that everything was great and they gave me loads of good feedback but for some reason that just bad timing you know and it's a numbers game as well and they have Mm -hmm. to be able to sell something like a historical fiction novel and the market is quite saturated in that respect so long story short I made all of these amazing connections and I had so many amazing conversations And a few of them wanted me to do rewrites and send them back. And I thought, but this story, it has to be a specific story. It has to go a certain way. And and I realized that I was kind of looking at maybe self-publishing instead. Mm -hmm. And my first thought when I thought of self-publishing was, meh, that's that's not as good. It's not Uh as good as getting an agent. It's not as good as getting a book deal and celebrating that. And having a team of people where I can just send off pages of my manuscript and they kind of fix it for me in my head. That's what I, that's what I was thinking. And there is, and there is a stigma about Uh self-publishing because so many people think, nah, it's not as fancy. It's not as fancy as getting an agent. Okay. But I knew that motherland had to go a certain way. It was based on my grandmother's story. I couldn't change it for, to make it sell. I couldn't change it for the industry. I knew maybe it wasn't perfect, like industry perfect, but it was my story. And I wanted to put it out a certain way. So I decided to go down the self-publishing route and it's, I had to research a lot. And I used at first I used, Oh God, what was it? Um, Lulu books. Yeah. And yeah, because uh, they did hardcovers and I had like this thing in my head, I wanted a hardcover copy. I wanted to to figure out how to design a hardcover book. Um, And this was my first one and I wanted it to be really special. So I used Kickstarter to help me fund Uh my upfront costs and get kind of the train going um, on that. And, And that was amazing. 
And it turned out really well. And I made some money off of it. And it was great. And I just, like, people loved it. And now it's sold globally. And all of that was great. But I just realized through that process, and I learned a hell of a lot, mm-hmm. I realized that I don't need to do kind of some big thing now that I had traction um, and now that I have a decent kind of audience on Instagram, mm-hmm. although I do want to go bigger, I do want to kind of have more different people read my books. Um, so when I started thinking about self-publishing these, I finished the kind of the first manuscript and I went to my previous kind of book cover guy who helped me get my sketches out and kind of create something with me. And I just said, let's do this, but I don't want to do hardcovers. I'm just going to go straight to Amazon. Now I will say kind of to people who want to self-publish KDP, which is the self-publishing platform on Amazon is very user-friendly. It's very good, but I, in order to kind of present yourself a certain way, I completely think that you need to think, or anybody needs to think of self-publishing as an equal path Mm -hmm. to having an agent. And um, I know that, I know that that doesn't sound right because people will look at agents and kind of just see them on a higher level. And I understand that agents are geniuses. They are, they know exactly what will work for the industry. Mm -hmm. And if you get a good agent, it's like having a personal trainer, a cheerleader, somebody who you can call up and go, I don't want to do this anymore. And they say to you, you can do this, just calm down. Let's kind of work this out. Mm -hmm. Self-publishing is not like that at all. (laughs) it's very isolated and you're your own personal trainer, your own cheerleader, editor, publicist. You just kind of have to do all the work. But I can't tell you how empowering it is looking back and realizing that I've really kind of just pedaled on this hamster wheel every single day myself. Yeah, and you've done it completely yourself. I think it's a really important thing to see it as an equal footing because you are doing so much work um and as an author who's gone down the more traditional route I am also doing a lot of work but I have someone to send it to I have someone to mitigate my fears of have I gone over the top is this bit not right and you know shifting around all of that bit but you are wearing um so many different hats all of the time um that must be exceptionally difficult at times it's it can be soul destroying Mm. it you know and also add on top of that every writer has imposter syndrome so I'm I'm sitting here in my little office at home going what am I doing it's Mm. the lizard brain it keeps convincing me that I am a complete sham totally useless at this no one will ever read my stuff I might as well just give up you know so it's and then, you know, the, the dark days always come with the lighter days and you kind of, I sit here and I think, but I, I don't want to do anything else. I want to do this. And yes, I mean, it would be amazing to kind of, to have a relationship with an agent one day. And I'm not saying that, that, that won't happen. Maybe it will one day, maybe I'll submit, you know, a proposal for something, or maybe I'll submit a manuscript one day that will be you know, sellable and somebody goes, yes, that's the thing I've been looking for. But 
so far kind of tackling self-publishing on my own and kind of trying to push myself out there. And yes, sometimes I wish I could focus more on the writing instead of my visibility, Mm. which is, which is tiring. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but it's really an amazing way of controlling how your words get out there. Mm-hmm. That's and what you, re- yeah, that's really what you retain as yeah. a self-published author is you do have complete control. Um, yeah. Whereas you and relinquish control because you literally sell your book to somebody else. Yeah. So, yeah. And ultimately I want people to read my books. I want to get it on a shelf. And if I make some money doing that, that's great. And honestly, what I've managed to do, like I managed to take the profit from motherland and use it to help kind of create the covers to these next books. Mm. So I am making some money. That's not the goal. My goal isn't to, to be a a million dollar best-selling author. My goal is to just get my books into people's hands everywhere Mm -hmm. And if I can do that, then great, you know? And I think, honestly, I, I honestly think one of the most important things is if you're going to self-publish, if you can use some money to create a cover, it makes a world of difference. Um, yeah. And you can find freelance. I mean, I found my guy, Amir, like he's so talented. I found him on a freelance site um. online and and he knows exactly what I'm thinking when I show him sketches and he kind of creates something that I really connect to and he understands me. And I think the cover for a self-published book will make a huge difference instead of uploading a picture. And, mm-hmm. and But you can do that on Amazon, which is great. Like You can do it for free. You can upload a picture and publish a book like that. But I think if you can spend some time and a little bit of money kind of creating covers, it will make more of an impact. I think that's something that helps the work look like it's on an equal footing. And so much um, is a little bit of a trick. If you have something that looks like a book that is more traditionally published, then it helps the reader think, you you know, it's just a brain thing of, oh, well, I'm getting something that looks like something I'm used to getting because I have noticed that, that a lot of self-published books don't necessarily have this, the kind of the same presence that um, books that are traditionally published have. And, and recently, actually, um, I'm part of a beta kind of testing program, but Amazon is now allowing self-published authors to publish in hardcover, which has never right. happened before. Mm-hmm. So I think people should be aware of that as well, because that also can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like in a larger way of looking at it, even if you're self-published, you have to create a presence for yourself and your book. And I don't mean just a social media platform. I mean, you have to think it, embody it, feel it. You have to bring your A game every Mm. single time you show up, whether it's kind of doing a podcast or whether it's doing an um, Instagram live video Uh or Anywhere you are, you have to embody that this is what you do. These are my books. And that comes along with kind of giving your books a presence. Because if your books have something unique, then it's Mm -hmm. going to connect with people. Yeah. I think that it's very similar um, to 
being a traditionally published author, you have to embody your work. You have to be the main cheerleader for your work. And yes, you have other people who are invested in the work, but you have to be the first invested. You are the one who's got to write it. You're the one who's got to do it. You've got to publicize it. You've got to talk about it. Um, so in that respect, it's same as. So I yeah. think if people are wanting to, you know, if people are holding back from self-publishing thinking well would I be a real author you are just as real absolutely 100% and also like without sounding terribly uncreative if that's a word oh my god I don't even know if that's a word but um you have to think of it as a business uh-huh. too and I think over time I've learned that and I I used to really hate when my husband who kind of runs his own company, he would say that you have to kind of think of it as a business. Mm. You, this brand, you being an author is, is a kind of think of it as a business. And I used to hate it. And now I understand it because as soon as you think about it as a business, your submission letters will be different. You present yourself differently. When you write to agents, you present yourself published works differently. You just, it's a, you just have to think about Mm -hmm. it in that way. Yeah, it's a really important way of thinking about it. When I did my MA, we did a lot of work about, you know, really how you position yourself, how you see yourself. And and when you're a business, I used to work um, as a product designer. And so when you're designing a product, the thing that you start with is the market and what the market wants yep. and what the market's demanding. And what you would have realized through having so many full manuscript requests was that there is a market. There was a market there for that work as well, which surely must have helped kind of reassure you, but you're completely right. You have to become a brand. And the funny thing was, um, I was talking to um, Ilona Bannister, who we had on a couple of episodes ago, just privately the other day, and we were talking about being your own mini business. You have to brand yourself and you've just got to get on with it. And it's a really um, bit cringy as well to sometimes think in those terms but you have to do it because you think it limits your your the the way you approach it your art or your creativity but it doesn't because as soon as you think about it as a brand like then you retain a kind of consistency so Mm -hmm. all across your social media platforms for example you have to be consistent with how you present you like you know the way things look or what you talk about or which is why recently i started deleting a lot of i i love a selfie i love taking an outfit shot i love it but on my feed i don't people don't i don't want to see that anymore people don't necessarily need to see that not because i'm trying to be high and mighty but because the consistency it has sustainability. Mm. If you're, if, if, you know, and, and that's, but I'm only approaching that because I'm a self published author and I want more of that consistency. I love Jessie Burton, for example, but I love the fact that she peppers her stuff with shots of her kind of interiors or her paint choices or her haircuts. And I love her. Like, I think she's so adorable and she's so talented, but I'm, I'm trying to create something where nobody is helping me so Mm -hmm. I think you know I I want to kind of fine-tune it a little bit so that there's a more of a consistency it's all my words or my books and whatever Mm -hmm. yeah I think it's really important to um to give yourself a constraint we also spoke a lot 
about that at uni as soon as you constrain yourself then you actually become more creative because you've got to think of creative ways around this constraint so if you constrain your writing what you're kind of honing in on what subjects you're thinking about you it it takes away that kind of sloppy I could be everywhere I could be anywhere kind of thing and people know what you're there for and more importantly you know what you're there for that's it that's exactly it that's the point it's like people will reach for you because they know exactly what you do and who you are and Mm -hmm. I really and I really enjoy that and sometimes it's difficult because social media is so fun and and wildly kind of, of creative and it has lots of different things and there are so many distractions but I love when there are some accounts that have the same stuff just presented in different ways all the time and I'm and I think I know exactly who this person is mm-hmm. I know exactly kind of what they stand for and I know exactly what their and I hate saying this but product is yes without sounding boring but that's that's what it is yeah yeah you know what you're getting I think yeah and yeah, I, I think that talking about self-publishing will be very useful for a lot of people I've had a lot of questions since we started the podcast with people um toying with the idea of self-publishing and and trying to kind of I suppose really give themselves permission to do it as well that it is just as relevant and just as valid a form of getting your book out there onto the bookshelves um Mm. now we usually at the end wrap up a little bit and talk about um what we've been reading which we're going to do nice and quickly because I need to go and do the school run very shortly (laughs) talking of motherhood yeah Um, yeah so what have you been reading recently so I just finished Untamed by Glennon Doyle and I'm a bit late to the party but oh my word the amount of dog-eared pages in that book it's just (laughs) I love how direct it is I just devoured it um before that I sobbed my way through The Light Through the Leaves by Glendy Vandera um it's such an extraordinary book I would gift it to anyone like anyone it's just if, if you like where the crawdads sing it's a very similar book uh, but glendy approaches things from a much more um nature kind of perspective and um uh, she's just so talented it's ridiculous yeah. and then now i'm starting a little life oh so another book that's going to make you cry basically i know i yes. heard <laughs> yeah you're just going to basically be a complete wreck between releasing a book about grief and reading uh, a little life. You're really just going to. I, I, I tend to be a. Mas- I tend to be a. I tend to be a masochist. So yeah. Mm. Oh, I love a book that makes me cry. I think it's always quite a. It's a nice release. Although, oh, yeah. I've cried so much more books over the last year than I ever have. I think everything's. Um, coming out when I read I read this week um, Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss um, I love yeah. Sarah Moss as a writer I just think she's exquisite I struggled a little bit with Ghost Wall um, to get into it I think I struggled for about the first nine pages and I thought well yeah. this is quite difficult to get into it was quite different from her other work and then suddenly I was nearly finished so it yeah I really got immersed in it and absolutely loved it and I'm 
started um, my Women's Prize Challenge. I am reading No One Is Talking About This by Patricia Lockwood. <gasps> oh, I have that. It's next on my list after a little life. Oh, oh I can't, my I can't wait. goodness. It's brilliant. I love Patricia Lockwood. I think she is just prodigiously talented. Anyway, her memoir, Pre-Study, um, was set me on the route of thinking maybe I could write about religion and write about yes. the past. And um, she's she's a very, very smart writer. And, oh, I just thoroughly recommend it. So that's my, I've started my reading um, on a real high, I think. So, yeah, <laughs> on with the rest. But it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. I think we have um, covered you. so much and it's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been really good. And I, the one thing I wanted to say is that when it comes to self-publishing, I do have um, a YouTube show that I do with uh, my partner, Marissa Hussey, who w has worked in the publishing world for years. Um, and we approach it from the creative and also the publishing, uh, kind of the ins and outs of the publishing world aspect. And it's called The Craft and Business of Books. And it, the series is on YouTube. And we interview well-known authors, agents, editors, um, and kind of it talks about the ins and outs of getting your book on a shelf, basically. So if anybody's interested in that, I think it's quite entertaining, but also really helpful. And I'm kind of in development. Uh, right now, Marissa's on maternity leave, but I'm developing uh, a kind of a monthly course uh, for the craft and business of books, which basically fine tunes um the industry a little bit more and i take people through kind of sub submission letters um templates um you know telling people about kind of agenting and talking about spreadsheets and kind of just approaching it in a much more granular way so brilliant we will make yeah. sure um we'll put a link in the show notes below so that people can find that because I think that all of this um, knowledge that you've gathered and this real kind of industry knowledge as well is absolutely invaluable to people just trying to get started in self-publishing so I will pop that underneath it be in the show notes um, next week so thank you so much thank for you. joining us it's been a pleasure thanks thank Ellie you. thank bye you. you've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ellie Miller and Penny Windsor you can find show notes, including the best ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe and please go ahead and leave us a little review. It really helps others to find the podcast. You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore writes and Penny at Penny Windsor. Music and editing is by Ewan Miller McMeekin.